0: Hi, Roycast listeners. Brendan here. We want to quickly preface this discussion of episode 7, Austerlitz, with a content warning. This episode of Succession does deal with substance use and abuse and trauma, including sexual abuse, in a more explicit way than previous or future episodes. While we don't veer too much from our typical format, heavier topics do arise throughout this recording with respect to the role they play in the episode, but also in our own lives, which is something we don't usually do, but given the subject matter, we felt this material supported our discussion. So, if you're not feeling like that's something you want to listen to today, feel free to skip and come back to us later this week for Episode 8, Prague. Without further ado, here's today's discussion of Austerlitz. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome back to the RoyCast, the Internet's only podcast about the HBO series Succession. My name is Brendan. As always, I am joined by my co-hosts, Kate. Hey. And Gabby. Hey, everyone. You're listening to episode seven, Austerlitz, family therapy episode. We have are actually recording this one a little bit out of order Um, I feel like because we had a lot to say you may have noticed that there is no special guest with us today It's just the three hosts and that's because I think this was a an episode where we realized that um, We kind of perhaps selfishly wanted to uh, be able to make all the points uh, That we had about this episode But we've been doing the show for a little while now and we're wrapping up the first season And we just want to say thanks to everybody who has listened and engaged with us online so far
1: Yeah, I mean it's been incredibly flattering. So, we've noticed that some of the cast and crew are engaging with our social media and we know some people have listened and given us really good feedback and reached out to us and we just could not have expected this after a month. Really, you know, we're we're so grateful. And we're so glad cuz this really is just a labor of love for us. I mean, we we love the show and um, you know, we just wanted to talk about it. I mean, that was the providence of all of this. So the fact that you guys are noticing and it's kind of psyched that, that we're so <laughs> invested in, in the show, is it's really cool. And you are, any of you are welcome to come join us on the podcast. We will drop whatever we're doing, any responsibilities whatsoever to uh, to make that happen. So thank you so much. And everyone else who's listened and given us their thoughts and feedback, we really appreciate it.
0: Yeah, we want to shout out people who are listening so far, but especially the most important people listening uh is HBO's uh, PR people. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You're Adam very generous. Okay,
2: Jesse yeah. Armstrong, Jeremy yeah. Strong. Thank you guys. Okay. We love you. We love your feedback saying this is even exceeds what you know the show aspired to do. Um and and what we're gonna keep trying to hit that bar. Thanks, guys. And all the Fly Guys followers on, you know, both Instagram and Twitter, you know, Stitcher, Sp- Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and um, SoundCloud. Thanks, guys, so much for listening. And Yeah, and
1: let us know what you think and what you'd want to hear more of, or if there's something we missed, or if you just want to shoot the shit about the show, we are all always willing to talk about it at any moment. So, yeah, I guess in the absence of, of a guest here, to sort of start us off and... Give us their impression of the show and, and their favorite episodes and whatnot. I will talk a little bit about, like, my trajectory watching the show because this episode, Austerlitz, was sort of pivotal, um, for me. I know it was for, for quite a few people. But yeah, you know, all the episodes have changed for me on a rewatch and, and I'm not really sure I could identify which is my favorite episode. It's a very hard question, but I know that for sure the first time that I watched the show through, I was confident that this was my favorite episode. Watching it, I was just, like, totally gobsmacked by how brilliant and true it rang. Like, I was almost wary because it felt too good to be true. I was like, they're going there with the psychology and the the intergenerational trauma and addiction. Like, they're going to fuck it up somehow. Or at least make some sort of, like, glaring error that will bother me. And then they just absolutely stick the landing and it's
0: perfect. I think, uh, you know, just on the heels of episode six, where the show kind of shows its hand and kind of upsets the game board and you really don't know which direction it's going. Yeah, I think what you're describing, Gabby, is this experience of just like, you know, wow, this show is like really it's really going for it. You know, it's really going for this this very heavy material. That you might not have been expecting from some of the more comedic, you know, slapstick earlier episodes.
1: Exactly. Like I I mentioned that it was the comedy, I think, in episode two that sort of hooked me. And I was interested in the drama, but I didn't find myself super invested in, in the drama until I think the end of episode five. And then, of course, episode six happened. And that was when I thought to myself, "Okay, like this is the real shit. This is some of the greatest TV I've seen in years. and then not not out of like any pessimism but i just didn't think i would get to the point of okay this is probably one of the greatest shows ever created but in episode seven like that's where i was i think it it captures the spirit of the show's message and and project so well it definitely this episode clearly you know resonates on a personal level for a lot of people it did for me in various ways, and it it delves into issues that are very dear to me um, personally, professionally, et cetera. And it it does so in such a thoughtful, yet not like soapy or precious way that I, I really don't think I've ever seen before. And I think it's interesting that people who are part of the show kind of felt the same way, that this episode, or maybe episode six, for some people, maybe it was episode eight, was sort of like the inflection point of the show. Um, I know Kieran Culkin said by the time we were doing episode seven, eight, nine, I was like, "It feels like we have a show here." Sarah Snook, is it Snook or Snook? I'm I'm sorry if it's Snook and I've been saying it wrong, Sarah. I've heard I've so heard selfish. it pronounced
0: Snook. I think it with the the long ooh. I okay. That's correct.
1: So she said when we were getting scenes that were with the siblings all together, working that dynamic, I was like, "Okay, this is the show. This is where it's the most interesting." And I think that's what Jesse and the rest of the writers did, which was genius, is putting them all together in a room in these circumstances where families should triumph. And yet this is the very moment where they tear each other to shreds, they eviscerate each other. You know, So this is the trauma episode, if you will. And what I like about this episode, aside from the fact that I am... Interested in trauma, interested in the trauma of these people is that everyone is, everyone is wounded in this episode in, in ways that we haven't seen before. Logan is wounded in this episode. You know, we, we, we've seen him physically sick, but he's wounded emotionally in this episode. Um, even the cold open with the, the pee getting pelted at him by the <laughs> Antifa protesters. It's, you know, it's not funny. You see that he's kind of, uh, I mean, it, it's funny, but through this,
0: it's a little, it's a little funny. It's a
1: little funny, but through, especially when he says you monopolist scum. But you know, you see him like he's he's anguished and shaken up in a way that he hasn't been before. Yeah, and so to see that was was kind of jarring, and then you know it comes full circle to, at the end of the episode. But but we get more of. Logan's um, emotional life here—not that he has much of an emotional life, but that's sort of the point.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, big, so, big Logan episode this week. Yeah, I think so. which was what what really hit me on rewatch is how much of this episode is about Logan. Like, it's obviously about the family as a whole, but this is maybe the one where we get in, in the final shot, especially like very pointedly, the most insight into who Logan is as a person. You know, beneath uh, these sort of barriers around himself and uh, and why he is the way he is. And you talk about, you know, this position of woundedness and the name of the episode, Austerlitz, you know, refers to this, refers to a place, but it refers mainly to this, this Napoleonic battle where Napoleon defeated his enemy by uh, feigning woundedness, basically by pretending that his forces were depleted and causing his enemy to expose his position uh, from which he could then attack. And I think what you see is that what's significant about the name of the episode is that position of woundedness that position of attacking from this from this position of feigning injury which is how how logan lashes out uh when he's confronted uh, by his children in this episode
1: yeah right. um and it's the so, first time we, we really see the the kids kind of face logan head-on in, in a way that they haven't before and that's part and parcel of where they're at after the explosive ending of episode six i think a lot of them have you know regressed into sort of childlike states and defense mechanisms we'll get we can get into that a little bit more later but yeah the setting is pretty incredible and and it's the first time that they're out of the city so you know the contrast from all the sort of you know monochromatic boardrooms and cityscapes all of a sudden we are in this like wide open space in the desert uh i noticed that all the kids drive in this episode which is which is funny um yeah so it's sort of this Sepia saturated, um really beautiful uh setting for what ends up becoming maybe like, you know, the most ardent battle of the show, at least in terms of familial dynamics, which is, you know, what we know the heart of the show
0: is. That's such a great point about all the kids driving because they've all they're they all like live in new york city as adults and yet they're all driving cars in this episode so the fact that they even know how to drive is just like maybe this is unfair but you know what assholes right
1: yeah i mean and it's you know obviously when we think about kendall driving and you know he mentions in the in the finale that You know, he doesn't really ever drive that much because he's super rich and people drive him around all the time. But the kids are kind of, they're they're in a different state here. They're in sort of a post-traumatic state. But yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting that, like, there is an inherent oppressiveness to New York City, even if you're super rich. Um, I say this as a native New Yorker. And I think... Kind of by bringing us to this, you know, this house that's like, it's very beautiful. It sort of is like this, uh, you know, almost like rustic Mediterranean vibe to the house, which is so different from any of the other settings that we've been in.
2: It's Um, super New Mexico style
1: house. Like, that's beautiful.
2: Yeah, that's what a lot of the houses in New Mexico look like. And there's actually a name for. The style. Um yeah, uh, and they have cool. desertscapes instead of like lawns and stuff like that.
1: And I and I love the kids' reaction to it. Connor's like, Isn't this so great? And Shiv's like, Yeah, it's brown. I mean, I peed my pants laughing when she said just the way she delivered it was so good. Yeah, it's brown.
0: Yeah, because you drive through like, I don't know, <laughs> however many miles of just flat desert <laughs> to get there. And it's like, yeah, your house is is brown. Cool.
1: Yeah, and it's it's so beautiful and it's like sarah snook said in that quote earlier it should be a place where they're all um able to kind of like heal that's the intention with the you know the family therapy but does that happen you know
0: yeah he has like a the property has like a church on it like a historic uh looking church Mm -hmm. uh which he's repurposed into i'm not sure exactly what he's repurposed it into but it's the it's the place they end up doing like the quote-unquote family therapy it's just like a a
3: lounge
1: it's his (laughs)
0: that's <laughs> cryogenic slap. Yeah, exactly. No, that that's that's underground. That's that's like all that's underneath that's underneath the desert they just drove through. The water. Um, yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, this it's it's a great point about, you know, you talked about that interview where, you know, the cast felt like this is where they started finding the show and it's true that like the last four episodes they had been, you know, in and around, you know, Manhattan, um in the financial district, you know, uh in this sort of corporate setting and you know the next four episodes this one episode seven through ten are where they take the characters and they put them in a new place they take the characters and they put them in a new place where they're all kind of trapped together they're all forced to kind of deal with each other and i really do feel like that is that is the show you know and that's what happens in episode two also which i think of as also being you know um close to the level that you get to in these last in these last few episodes but uh but th- but it's definitely a, a big contrast to the way that episode six plays out which is you know over a couple days, takes place over a couple of, you know, locations throughout the city. There's a lot of editing back and forth between characters that are in different locations. Uh, There's this great action kind of set piece with Ken frantically rushing to get to the meeting. Uh, And now all of a sudden, none of that is here. And the only urgency is just how these characters are going to face each other and and what they're going to have to say to each other. That's the action to be had. Right.
1: Episode six (laughs) felt so, like adversarial we talked about it being you know just sort of um mired in, in this this tension there's there's a terrorist threat and then they bring us to Austerlitz and it's so pic- picturesque and beautiful and and jeremy strong had a good quote about it saying we sort of went down a k-hole in new mexico i feel like i did they wouldn't let us smoke meth so i don't know what we were smoking but it felt like we were in this gauzy fucked up fever dream place that's kind of what the episode feels like. And it leads you to believe that it might be a, like a calm episode where where something gets resolved or the the trauma from from episode six is addressed in a meaningful way. And, you know, it ends up, like I said, everyone ends up incredibly wounded here, even the people who, um you know, tend to put up the best front for that kind of stuff.
2: I mean, I think they all are wounded as is, it's just something they don't particularly allow themselves to feel or face and this episode allows them to experience something, and they can no longer deny that woundedness, and it comes out. But I do think the woundedness is it, it, it's existing as is; it's just completely repressed and unconscious. Gabby was talking about how this episode, you know, hit her so hard, and and it was her favorite episode on the first watch. And you know, I absolutely concur. I know it's a lot of fan favorites I've seen from some discussion online. It was in- incredibly triggering for me the first time I saw it, in a lot of ways because uh, I resonated so deeply with so much of what was depicted, such as like the dysfunctional codepen- codependent family dynamics, and you know this unconscious search for approval and validation that's never going to u- occur, Unability to process the trauma, as we kind of talked about, like the kids just not being able to face or even acknowledge that they have experienced trauma. They're in complete denial and and, and deluding themselves in that regard. And, and, of course, the addiction issues that are depicted so particularly well and those dynamics. And, and again, so it, it hit me incredibly hard. And even on many rewatches, it was hard for me to take notes and kind of process this episode as I have others, because I just get lost in the experience of it. Um, it just, you know, I go there and it, it was tough for me to kind of separate some of those things, but I'll do my best, uh, you know, as we go through this conversation to kind of suss out some of those thoughts. Yeah, this was a tremendous episode and, and agreed also on rewatch. I'm not sure if it's the best episode, but it's definitely, you know, a, a huge pivoting point as the second half of the season is uh, we discussed. I think that's basically how they had to... Uh, set up this season for the first five episodes you you need to become invested in these characters to really create the kind of drama and tragedy that occurs in the second half and to be able to feel for them i think uh you know it was a necessity and it, it was so well done and uh as we all you know kind of discussed
0: i was a little bit underwhelmed i think after episode six which i was you know i was really really high on and thought you know wow this uh you know the show uh, has has got has really stepped its game up in a way that I didn't necessarily see coming and this episode you know it felt like it moved a little bit more slowly maybe it was just like a, it was put on it was putting the action on hold and you know there was I, I think not the the direct connection to I think the you know the subject that you two found but you know for me like kind of on rewatches you know I've come to kind of you know appreciate you know the way this episode is so exemplary of how deeply the actors and the writers know these characters because it's not the kind of episode that would just be even possible to pull off not for, you know, how deeply these people are inhabited and, you know, Gabby, you made this point um, about the the style of the episode and of the show, you know, not incorporating flashbacks and all this information about the past is really just sort of inferred or implied. And there's this unreliability to our knowledge of, you know, what their childhoods and their pasts were like. And that lends this kind of, you know, queasy subjectivity to you know what's happening where you're never quite sure if these people are being honest about what their past was like about what it was like for other people and it's it's a it's a very troubling i think kind of thing to watch um even uh, even on repeat viewings as i know we've all seen it a number of times
1: yeah i think that's a good characterization so the thing about this episode is that it starts to delve into more explicitly um, issues of mental illness Trauma, dysfunctional childhoods, addiction. And in situations like that, usually in TV, flashbacks or other devices kind of serve to fill in biographical info, but there are no flashbacks in succession. Um, it's linear storytelling and it makes it very difficult to get this kind of subject matter right. Because, like Brendan said, you know, we don't really know what to trust or what to think because the only actual glimpses we get of the Roy kid's childhood is through the title credits, ironically, but we don't get anything else. We don't get either Ken's clinical history with his substance use issues or his recovery. Like we don't know if he goes to meetings. We don't know if he's on medication. We don't see any of this stuff. And and while, you know, which, which I think is it's really ambitious. It speaks to the show's confidence, like Brendan said, the 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 writer's familiarity with these characters and and how well they know them. And so instead, you know we're sort of catapulted back into the present. We're asked to fill in the gaps if we care to, but you know the point is that these are that there are s- serious traumas. Kendall's substance abuse issue is serious, and um, succession doesn't have to belabor that point and get into granular details for us to understand this.
2: This Something I've found, again, I mean, you mentioned mental health, but mental health is something that we can infer it is never brought up in the show, period. Which, again, kind of speaks to, like, the confidence of the show not really giving us any background or even trying to over-explain anything, you know, but that's, it's never once mentioned or discussed in the show. It's something we can maybe talk about here. And I'm sure we all have our theories, but I found that, you know, interesting with all the therapeutic talk, et cetera, drug addiction issues, which are many times just self-medication for mental illness, you know, but mental illness is like never brought up once
1: Roman does make the borderline personality joke in the finale but 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 you're right I mean it's in this episode even though it is an episode about you know mental well-being and aspects of somebody's history that contribute to that and influence it yeah I mean it's it's only sort of the adjacent issues the issues of of therapy of addiction Mm -hmm. you know the kids talk about therapy they're in a therapy episode but You know, we know the kids are in therapy, and I'll get to that scene. But I think the show's treatment of drugs is really smart. Shows that depict wealth tend to kind of, like, want to shoehorn in all this debauchery and, and premium content wherever they can. But Succession takes, like, a much more realistic, measured approach. So, like, the Roys are degenerates, but they're not degenerates in the way that we might expect. They have terrible relationships. They don't know how to love. They don't know how to empathize. And this is so much more important to emphasize than sort of like the revelry of the wealthy. And I think Ken getting high on the mountain at the end um, is one of the most, you know, poignant depictions of that. That drug use isn't always ugly. It's not always stylish. And it's not
2: always like necessarily like so, I mean, debaucherous, that's the point you're getting to. But like so bad
1: is not necessarily the right yeah, word, but... I mean it, it helps humanize Ken, because you really see, like, in this episode, you see what drugs do for him. They completely transform his body language, they make him feel better. Addiction doesn't exist in a vacuum. Um, there's a reason that people become dependent on certain substances, and, and we see Ken is just totally different in this episode from anything before. You know, he's less rigid, there's you know, there's not like the blind rage and fear. And so when you see him smiling at the end of the mountain, I mean, for me, as somebody who really, you know, empathizes with people who struggle with drug use and, you know, have some firsthand experience with it. I think it was kind of a really beautiful moment and nothing was shoved down our throats, but it was it was humanizing for Ken. It was just like, this is what I do. to This is how I feel better. And it's like the, the contrast from how he is when he's sober versus when he's using, um, even if he's not like, wasn't like actively high, but just just the, you know, the tension and the relief that that we see. And that's sort of embodied in Ken's, you know, whole sort of attitude in this episode. Mm -hmm. I think it really is like a wise commentary on on addiction.
2: Well, one of the things when he's uh, at the Wolfpack's house is what I'm going to refer to them.
1: Um, love it, guys, Wolfpack, can come on the show too. Yeah,
2: Wolfpack, hot, we hot love you. Hot couch, y'all. guys.
3: Hot
1: yeah. couch. <laughs> <laughs> I love that hot couch theme, and it's so good. It it's
2: really just spot on. I feel like I've been there right? in that place myself, if not like the host, <laughs> the Wolfpack themselves. <laughs> but and this is kind of a little digression, but it goes back to the mental illness. I think. What's so interesting is when he's there, Kendall makes the comment that uh, type A's can't be addicted because they already are addicted. And what I find so interesting, what struck me with that is like he's not willing to go there with maybe I'm depressed, maybe I have some issues I need to work on. Maybe there's trauma that's eating me alive from the inside. Maybe, you know, I have this unconscious drive that will never stop to get validation and love from my father and that I need to deal with that stuff. But no, it's that
1: he's type A. Do you know what I mean? Totally. And that's That's similar to the conversation that Shiv and Rome have, where they just are unable to acknowledge that they're traumatized.
2: Yeah, I just wanted to go back to this Ken scene on top of the mountain. I found that a really incredible metaphor. It's after he's hit kind of his apex with the night previous and becoming completely vulnerable and comfortable in his own skin and taking his dad to task and being independent and feeling confident in who he is. So he climbs up, and if you notice, it's the highest spot On the landscape that we can see entirely. So it's like. You know. Ken has hit his high point. His apex. And he's there. And he you know, uses just a little bit to maybe, you know, s- soak it all in. That's that's how he's able to feel. And I just found it, you know, like I said, it's like these high points, the apex. And, and it, it, it's, it was a really smart uh, way to illustrate that, you know, um, the day after. You know, he's not regretful, as he shouldn't be. Um, and I know we'll get to that as well.
1: Yeah, I was really excited to read that people involved in the show have acknowledged the relevance of of trauma. And I know that Jeremy Strong has said that Adam McKay was interested in exploring the idea of trauma in a nuclear family and how that can permeate and become societal or cultural trauma. Was that from an interview that you read? Yes, yes. Okay,
2: because I heard an interview where he says trauma is essentially what Jesse Armstrong says is right. the subject of... So I was just wondering if there was the Adam McKay-Jesse Armstrong confusion or if it was... No, 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 but, that was the next
1: effort, yeah. Yeah, that's good to know. I Actually, I had forgotten that bit about Jesse Armstrong saying that it really is the whole kind of, you know... Yeah, caboodle. Bunch. Yeah, I mean, it really is. And, and I, for one, am very grateful because I don't really think that... We have reckoned with how much trauma has shaped society. I think a lot of people tend to minimize their traumas. Other people minimize other people's traumas. There is a lot of uh, misunderstanding about trauma, just in the way that it's been um, sort of discussed in the in the psychological world. Like, there's a lot of associations with PTSD being something that happens to people who fight in combat. But the field is evolving and starting to understand that trauma really is at the heart of mental illness um, and all sorts of symptoms that, you know, are are exhibited by people who have experienced trauma. So the premise that I operate from, which is that trauma is the norm. It's not the exception. We are all traumatized, I think, to various degrees. But I think we are a world of people walking around carrying immense pain. And I think it's really worthwhile to look into it. And through the lens of a family like this, where you would think, how can, you know, how can these people be traumatized? They've had everything handed to them. Um, and and I think, you know, speaking to centering the perpetrators, and, and we've talked about this, uh, we talked about it in the pilot with Brendan James, but I don't think It has to take away anything from people who are true victims to acknowledge that people who have incredible privilege and who are actively harmful also have trauma. In fact, it's almost essential to acknowledge that. It's critical to understand how trauma develops, to kind of understand maybe what renders someone's experience of an event more debilitating than somebody else's, what helps people build resilience, what makes people violent, what makes people dysfunctional. So if we start to think of mental health in terms of trauma, I think we can start to build resilience and maybe, you know, engender some some generational shifts in the way we conceive of, of psychic pain such that trauma is not the norm and an invariable part of the human condition, which is sort of where we're at now. And unfortunately for society, you know, especially in American society, we're sort of rooted in this puritanical, staunch individualist, pull yourself up by your bootstrap ethos. And so a lot of things that are traumatizing go undetected. And when trauma goes undetected, unaddressed, it becomes dysfunction. that dysfunction replicates itself in various ways.
0: Can I ask a question, Gabby? Yeah. Could you maybe uh, tell me what your working definition of trauma is? So yeah, I can that's, make that's sure that I have the same understanding.
1: Yeah. So so my my basic working definition of trauma is comes from the um the biopsychosocial method which is sort of the new framework for dealing with mental illness as opposed to a medical model and basically what what is understood now is that there are basically as many different types of trauma as there are humans who experience trauma which is all of us so you know what might be traumatic for one person can end up being benign for another person what might lead someone to Substance abuse might lead someone else to compulsive hoarding. We tend to think of trauma as, like, these singular catastrophic events, but trauma is actually sort of the response to events that are distressing and change the wiring of our brain. So um, trauma is kind of what comes after the event. And trauma is not the event itself. It's the way that the event or events, because a lot of trauma is rooted in sort of childhood dysfunction that goes on for many, many years. And it's not really seen as, as trauma, but it's, you know, these small sort of micro traumas to use kind of an obnoxious term, but I've had mental health professionals use that term with me and they're, you know, distressing patterns of dysfunctional relationships, typically in childhood, that's where all this, this is rooted that if, they're not dealt with head on, they repeat themselves later in life. So, you know, I think we need to constantly think about trauma as dynamic as a response to events about the way that it distorts people's ways of thinking and influences and shapes behavior long term. So this helps us kind of better understand, identify and treat people who are experiencing mental illness or symptoms of mental illness, and also could help us deal with sort of the impact of of broader cultural traumas, which is a thing that we won't get into. But it's is also, you know, very important here.
2: I think, um, you know, just having the DSF, DSM, whatever, six, we're on five or six, we're on like, classification disorder of PTSD, post traumatic stress disorder does make it you know de- definitely doesn't help in understanding the way that you're defining trauma if if you understand what i'm saying it, it makes it sound like it's an incident that you then like a single incident um you know yeah. and that you respond poorly to and it, and that's a that's a you know definitely reductive and yeah, you know and it's and it's certainly not accurate but i think a lot of people take their ideas of trauma just from PTSD, like that that's their under the breadth of their understanding is ptsd and so that can
1: i just want to say with regard to the dsm that there's now a better understanding of what is called cptsd or complex ptsd and that is sort of the model that i'm talking about in that A lot of people deal with ongoing protracted neglect and abuse and dysfunction in their childhood experiences to varying degrees. And again, people can respond to that um, in various ways. Some people might have genetic predispositions that would engender, you know, a certain mental illness or a certain type of dysfunction that gets replicated later on in life. So thinking of of complex post-traumatic stress, I think, um, is helpful.
0: Yeah, I was I was really uh, finding myself agreeing with what Kay was saying about how the idea of post-traumatic stress disorder kind of frames, I think, the way that most people, you know, certainly for me, thinking about the way I thought about it growing up, think of the idea of trauma, that it's this thing that is connected to, you know, specifically the context in which we hear about that idea, which is usually to do with wartime and with veterans. So that's it's usually connected to this idea of, like, life-or-death conflict,
3: right? and, and that's what trauma is
2: a lot as well
0: increasingly yeah i but i mean i know for me the way i encountered the term growing up was was mostly to do with you know like veteran experiences right. so i mean that can yeah. that can lend that can lend itself to this i think this this notion that you know trauma is like this this big thing that certain people experience and not as you say gabby something that you know is is different for for different people something might be traumatic to somebody that's not traumatic to somebody else, which I think is a really useful way to think about, you know, the experience of characters like the Roy's who had a lot of advantages and a lot of things go right for them in life, uh, but the things that they didn't get have really shaped the rest of their lives, like, you know, affection and attention and uh, support from their parents.
1: I mean, absolutely. There was no currency of love in their lives, and we can get into that, but...
0: Can I go on a quick tangent? Yeah. Um, do, have Do mm-hmm. you know the book um, A Little Life?
1: I've heard of it.
0: Yeah. Um, I read that this book was published a few years ago. I just I just read it for the first time uh, recently it uh, won a lot of awards and was like highly acclaimed but it's basically the story of this uh, character who has gone through this like really uh, almost absurdly uh, tragic childhood who uh, becomes very successful but is kind of haunted by his his trauma and his past uh, all his life and the thing that occurred to me reading it, uh, uh, which I why I found it kind of enthralling and sort of distasteful in equal measure was that it occurred to me was that this notion of being, you know, really dramatically traumatized is, you know, kind of a fantasy, I think, uh, for some people to be both, you know, loved and tragic at the same time. And to have these uh, a big trauma that explains uh, your needs rather than, you know, the small ones that other people deal with, um, I think is absolutely a a fantasy that, that people have.
1: Right. And I think we heap a lot of guilt onto other people and onto ourselves because maybe, you know, our traumas aren't as bad as that. You know, I didn't fight in a war. I didn't you know, survive a horrible natural disaster. I don't have to to, to deal with the repercussions of racial trauma in, you know, in America and other places. And so I think it's helpful if we just, we all sort of start to understand that you can be traumatized in, in many different types of ways. It doesn't have to be that you survived some horrible atrocity, which of course is still, you know, something that, you know, needn't be obscured by introducing sort of a more broad definition of, of trauma. And, and it's interesting that this podcast has sort of coincided with my participation in a type of therapy called EMDR, which is a trauma-focused type of therapy, and it's biologically based. They treat a lot of soldiers with it. I was watching a, a documentary, um, with some Columbine survivors, and a lot of them mentioned that they have used EMDR to to reprocess and, and cope with that memory. So the basically the the idea of EMDR is that you are physically distracted by something else, whether it's holding like vibrating um, you know nodes in your hand, or your eyes are are directed to follow sort of you know some, the therapist's fingers. So the, the whole idea is that you recall memories that are correlated with certain emotions, feelings, the way that you um, see yourself. And, you know, most people who, who deal with trauma have, you know, m- major issues with, you know, negative self-talk and, and associations um, about the self and, and lots of self-hatred. So the whole um, end goal of EMDR is that you're able, you're, you're sort of asked to, to, on your own, close your eyes and recall a certain memory while um, this physical distraction is also active. And the therapist sort of, um, you know, once once you've recalled that memory, you open your eyes and the therapist kind of walks you through some free association, like what came up, and then they'll guide you and, and, you know, sort of steer the ship. and And the idea is to essentially rewire your brain, which is what trauma does. And what we understand more and more is that the impact of trauma on the brain, even though The brain is still a very big mystery. Um, We know that trauma changes the brain. So the more that you do something like EMDR and you recall memories, the idea is that with each session, the physical distraction helps you do this free associating where you are able to reorient yourself and kind of see the trauma for what it was, identify whatever feelings you associate with it, um, identify the maladaptive patterns that you've adopted and that have been born out of that trauma and eventually you sort of integrate all this new information and let it go and it takes time but the whole, the whole idea is that you sort of lessen the salience of the trauma on your brain and you're able to get relief because you have you know essentially unfucked your brain and it's interesting because the therapist one of my hesitations in starting was like i don't have one huge catastrophic traumatic event that's happened to me so I don't really even know where to begin. You know, I, I've had I've experienced trauma, and I can identify things in my past that are very painful that have affected me. I, I've been in talk therapy for pretty much my whole life, so you know I'm I'm pretty well acquainted with my own history in terms of of trauma and distress. And and the therapist said, you know, I've only had one patient who experienced something like you know catastrophic. Everybody else comes in with sort of distress from from various things from childhood. And the first memory she picked was something that, um, you know, because you do a couple of sessions of, you know, your background. And the first memory that she sort of egged me onto was something that I hadn't really even coded as traumatic um, because I was very young when it happened. And that was the way that I coped was by telling myself that it wasn't a big deal. And yeah, running through that memory, was very hard. I mean, you go through a... a you definitely have at least one or two really rough sessions where you know you're reliving a lot, but I cannot speak more highly of this form of therapy. I've experienced actual physical relief from EMDR um, because we know now the way that that trauma in the body and, and chronic pain are, are so interrelated. Which was another thing that struck me about the idea of Ken's body language and how we see him so relieved in this episode physically and that's because he's you know he's using a coping mechanism it's not a healthy coping mechanism you know in the context of, of succession in this episode for me the end of episode six was sort of the an example of the way that untreated trauma which is what's going on in this family repeats itself so I think austerlitz if we're using my working definition of trauma sort of being what comes after what shapes your brain, what shapes the way that you think about the world, that you think about yourself. I think Austerlitz is kind of the actual trauma. In other words, you know, the fallout. Um, so in this episode, the kids are, I think they've regressed into a, a childhood state after, you know, the really anguishing moment in episode six. And um, I know Kate had some thoughts about how they're all sort of, um, when they find out that dad wants to do family therapy, that they're all sort of calling each other um, and I do think that speaks to the way that, you know, the Roy kids have probably helped each other cope throughout their life. You know, they first
2: get the email and they immediately, because this family is so codependent, there's no individual person. They don't exist outside of this being that is their family. They, they just really don't. There, there's no individuation. There's no self-actualization that has occurred through their lives. And so... They have to live their experiences through one another. and And you witness that as they get this email and they call each other. So Connor first calls Shiv, you know, and he's like, "This is like, wow." And he also isn't sure if it isn't if it's fake. Shiv, who's presently, with Tom walking down the street who gets the email? She could literally tell Tom. Uh, instead, she chooses to pick up the phone and call Roman, and Roman, of course, is doing the family Logan and the company's bidding, trying to get Kendall on board to to come out there. And I think you know this shows again like how stuck they are in their childhood, this codependence, but also this this dr- drive to finally get their childhood right. Like they're thrilled. And I can empathize like when my dad has gone to therapy with me at times, you know, it's like, it's like, oh my gosh, are we gonna is this gonna can we can we fix this? Can this happen? You know? And it's just so, I mean, it's so, it's so tragic because we know they're never gonna get What they need from Logan, and they know that probably on like a conscious level, but their unconscious is constantly because it's never been resolved because they've never faced it because they've. never dealt with it in a in a effective way, they're constantly going to be searching for that. So they're so excited. And then this is where, in my opinion, you know, Logan is really feigning his weakness at this point. You know, the kids are thinking, oh wow, you know, we can really get Logan, we can really get dad on board, etc. Um, and a Osterlitz, and and Napoleon. They're already not emotionally mature adults. Like already that exist without even having to go back to New Mexico and regress even further, which they do. But like already, you know, they're not emotionally mature adults. They're just like a mesh of people that rely on one another for validation and intimacy. And it's quite sad. But yes, when they get there, it becomes even even worse.
0: Yeah, because the reason they're there is not for for real therapy, right? The whole prologue to this is that Logan gets hit with a piss balloon and Stewie has to sit him down and say, look, you want to do this huge TV deal that that is making, you know, Antifa and the anti-monopolists so mad at you. Uh, You know, you got to fix the optics. You got to get the family together for a nice photo op in a magazine article about how you guys are are a united front. That's what they're all getting together for is this exercise, which is going to help Logan fix You know, the optics to present this sort of unified family dynamic, which I don't think has ever been the case, you know, for them. Really, right? If you think about it, you know, obviously his daughter doesn't work with them. Uh, Roman failed out of Hollywood and Ken went to rehab. So when has this family ever been a united front, really? Uh, And it's it's uh, it's but it's very distressing at the same time because you see the kids do get their hopes up. This is going to be meaningful somehow.
1: When I realized this was going to be a therapy episode, I was worried just because, you know, I've had a lot of experience in therapy and a lot of depictions on TV. Of therapy um are just totally off and really infuriating because it's just it's that's not what therapy is like you know there have been some good portrayals in in, in recent years i know that brendan is also a fan of in treatment as am i so maybe we can oh, yeah. in treatment chat at some point um i think the affair had a couple of really good on point therapy scenes actually cynthia nixon played a, a therapist in, in in that show and she was fantastic six feet under has done it well big little lies of course the wonderful robin weiger but yeah it, it's tricky to get right and i think it's interesting that the therapy in succession is to fix the business and i think that that's makes sense because the only thing worth preserving and improving is the business not themselves um
0: yeah right? and the other the other great therapy show that you didn't mention is The Sopranos. <laughs> right. of course. I haven't finished The uh,
1: Sopranos, but yes,
0: which, I <laughs> which we I know we talk about all the time on here. Um, but I think there's a lot of similarities, especially if we think about the other shows you cited um, and in treatment and Big Little Lies. I haven't seen The Affair, but in uh, but in those two shows, therapy is a place where breakthroughs actually do happen. Right? Uh, right, where truth where truth is revealed and the process is is meaningful. And in the Sopranos, uh, you you do get some of that because uh, Tony does realize some things about himself. But we talked about this on the last episode, how a big theme of that show was, you know, the bullshit epiphany, uh, the idea that you can have this realization about yourself, but, you know, what you do with it is is up to you. Do you allow that to be the, the kernel from which, you know, you, you start, you know, a meaningful change in your life and commit to doing that work? Or do you say, wow, I had a breakthrough and feel really good about yourself and go on being the exact same piece of shit uh that, sh- that you always were. And that's that's what happens more often. Yeah, than I not. mean, I
2: think this, the product. idea is that you have a skilled therapist that's able to recognize that you had this epiphany and to use that consistently as a catalyst. I think in treatment and I've seen these other shows, um, except for six feet under um, in treatment. Really, really. Gabrielle Byrne is one of the most effective I I don't remember his character's name, but he's one of the most effective therapists ever portrayed on television, even more so than Dr. Melty. And I don't remember the big little lies. I mean, they're all good, but um, it it does come down to your analyst and how well
1: he or she is, um, is, is skilled. Right. Like I, I feel like going to what you were talking about earlier, Kate, like therapy is supposed to be hard. It doesn't exist to confirm your priors, to make you feel better about yourself. Um, It might, that might be a byproduct. It's also not, another thing that drives me insane about conception of therapy is that therapists give you advice. Therapists do not give you advice. A good therapist does not give you advice. Right. Therapy asks you, is supposed to ask you the right questions that allow you to go deep sweep the cobwebs, make the connections. So you're doing the work. It's incredibly painful. And I don't think the Roys are built for that kind of work and introspection. And this brings me to um, just <clears throat> want to talk about the the Shiv and Rome scene where they, they talk about therapy. It was so absolutely jarring for me. Like the first time I watched it, I think my jaw was on the fucking floor because it was so interesting the way that they are talking about their treatment in such a dismissive way, while also like acknowledging some very astute things in that conversation, but they're so removed from it. And I think you know, as someone who's benefited a lot from therapy, it was so interesting to see see them dismiss therapy not like not on its merits. It's not like they were talking and saying therapy makes no sense and it's stupid. You know, they acknowledge that that they're in treatment we don't really know for what again like we don't get details but you know my best guess is that they've been in therapy for a long time it's usually something that happens in wealthy families when there's a divorce you know you throw the kids in therapy um and i think their casual indifference about it is it's pretty consistent with anything um with their views about anything that invites vulnerability but the writing is so brilliant because then that dismissal of their treatment, they don't realize they're getting to the heart of exactly why their lives are so fucked up. When Shiv says the line, my guy, which again is hilarious that they refer to their therapist as my guy. Um, you know, as if they're just,
0: it's like, it's like a contractor. He's like a landscaper. Yeah, you know, exactly. he's, he's cutting, cutting the grass of their souls. Right.
1: right. And Shift says, my guy says, if dad had gone to therapy, I wouldn't need so much. It's like, ding, 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 ding. Like that's the problem. Like, your dad is fucked, and he passed along all of his fuckness onto you. Your trauma is rooted in your childhood, especially your dad. But your dad never evolves. So as long as you know you're yoked to him, you want to you want for him to 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 see you and validate you. But you're gonna be in arrested development because that's never gonna happen. So I think ultimately, like that conversation, which I thought was just incredibly interesting and and so different from anything I've ever seen you know, it speaks to one, their reluctance to address things with vulnerability two the need to believe that they are not traumatized. And three, sort of an inability to see therapy as anything beneficial because they lack the self awareness to see anything outside of their world as worth taking seriously.
2: Well, and, and their coping mechanism is to joke about, you know, these types of things.
1: And especially Roman. Yeah,
2: absolutely. <laughs> this is what and-
1: it looks like when you solve all your problems.
2: Right. But I do, I do uh, actually take issue with, I mean, I think that if um, Logan had had therapy or was doing therapy, it would be a lot easier for Shiv. But I do believe if Shiv were committed to therapy in a way that we've discussed where you can face these issues and not just. Sure. um, Yeah.
1: I think that she she could
2: have breakthroughs without Logan's.
1: Oh, for sure. Yeah. But it's just the idea of intergenerational trauma and the fact that that so much was offloaded onto them from Logan's trauma, which, you know, we get a little bit more of a glimpse of. And I think all these characters would be capable of making breakthroughs in therapy, but, you know, they're just not, you know, it's something that they they would probably see as just ultimately ineffectual because what else, what what reason do they have to believe that therapy is going to work? Um, well, you
2: have to be ready as well. Like, I mean, yes. resistance is such a huge part of therapy. I mean, can and you one imagine
1: old- what they th- what those therapy sessions look like? Yeah, like, I, I, the fact that they just they talk about it as if it's had no impact on their life really speaks to, um, yeah, like the the nature of therapy being something that you have to have some self awareness about how fucked you are and how much help you need. And you have to sort of just give into that. And it's, it's very painful. I mean, like, there were years where therapy was so painful for me. I was like, what is the fucking point here? But you have to do that.
2: I think you can start, though, from a place with lack of self-awareness oh, sure. and, yeah. and and go from there. One of my old therapists had this um, explanation and I'll, of course, ruin it. But he was both my individual therapists and my group therapists, as I was thinking about psychodynamics, you know, people would be frustrated that they're not seeing progress in, in themselves. And he would talk about like taking an axe or a hammer or a pick, I don't know, to a concrete wall, you know, and you do it day after day after day after day, and you don't see anything, right? Like the, the concrete doesn't break, nothing happens. And you're wondering, you know, what is going on. But if you continue to do this to the you know the concrete and keep doing it one day eventually there will be a crack so if you're willing to commit to the process even if you're at a place where you know the roy kids are where they can't really acknowledge the trauma think that they can get there the other thing is they probably had therapists that somewhat uh deferred to them because of their wealth and their you know general situation you know within the world and so that deferential i I doubt that they were as effective as you know they could be again i mean this is going off on you know theoretical stuff about their hypothetical analysts but um but yeah, I, I it, you know, resistance is a key part of therapy. Um, Freud talks a lot about it. You're resisting to see, to have any, and, and it's not really epiphanies, but any self-awareness. And then over time, though, if you can commit, you can see real change. Um, and I yeah. think it's
1: really funny that like, this idea of like the corporate therapist which is what's going on in this in this episode they're not bringing in like some phd or like heavy-hitting psychoanalyst it's a corporate therapist who was a harvard mba we don't even know if he's like a qualified mental health professional so i think it's, it's kind of funny and like it reminds me of of sort of how in like the workplace now there's all these like programs that are designed to to hone emotional intelligence and self-awareness and it's such a conceit, because all of that is very valuable. It's, it's important to be emotionally intelligent and self aware. I think it's something that we we undervalue. And I'm glad to see that it's valued more. But the fact that it's received more attention because of its you know ability to serve the goals of capitalism and productivity, like, you know, you're more emotionally intelligent, you'll, you'll work better as a team. And, you know, ultimately, the bottom line is that it's about you know, making that company stronger and making you a more productive worker. And so in this case, like that they were bringing in a corporate therapist to fix the business. I don't know. Like at first I was like, is the show mocking therapy?
0: I think it's a, uh, a realistic presentation of how someone like Logan would uh, would handle this exercise you know especially somebody who is as reactionary as he is and probably has a distrust of anybody who's like you know a, an ivory tower educated you know analyst or something like that he wants somebody sure. from the business world uh, who he can trust i love the signals they give about uh, this uh, corporate therapist played by the great Griffin Dunn in this episode who is always wearing an ascot which i think has has to be a reference to Elliot Kupferberg, uh Melfi's therapist on the Sopranos, played by Peter Bogdanovich because the uh, the ascot is a permanent fixture around Bogdanovich's neck. Not on the show, but in real life. And then there's the wonderful a line uh, when he has the poolside accident in this show, where he's diving into the pool, and uh, Roman says, "Pretend it's our subconscious," uh, which is <laughs> I love which that. is no, which is a great bit <laughs> because, of course, he he breaks his teeth uh, on the bottom of the pool, and he's diving into the <laughs> shallow end as well,
1: confirming Logan's priors about the whole idea of therapy, anyway.
0: The other hilarious thing this guy does is uh, recite the first verse of that Philip Larkin poem, Uh, This Be the Verse, which is, like, one of the most famous poems ever, so the fact that he only reads the first verse of this very short poem is particularly funny uh, in what he admits, uh, because the first lines, you know, talk about, you know, they fuck you up, your mom and dad, they may not mean to, but they do, they fill you with the faults they had and add some extra just for you, which is cited a lot, but then the last verse of that poem uh is man hands on misery to man it deepens like a coastal shelf get out as early as you can and don't have any kids yourself which <laughs> is a, a, a bit of a more kind of darker prescription oh, that's you know, a great... for a therapist to be referencing but yeah. he of course only reads the first stanza which is kind of a wry witty you know uh, literate joke uh, but what the poem actually says by the end is probably not something you would want to hear a therapist say
1: yeah. <laughs> Wow I didn't know that context thanks for that because yeah. <laughs> I cause that first verse like I mean it's it's a little silly but I mean it does speak to the idea of generational t- trauma which is you know at the heart of all of this
0: yeah yeah exactly
2: despite this guy being corporate and everything I have to say and and like his poem choice and diving head first, which all makes him seem kind of like a dance. Although I would say, you know, him diving first head first in the subconscious, he couldn't handle it. Um, is more what's going on there. But, you know, I, I think he was actually decent in the, I, I I actually thought he was decent and was able to pull some observant, uh, and mean meaningful ideas besides like you know kind of taking the break that sort of stuff which yeah, is it
1: was, it was a great scene it was an important like precursor into what comes in the final scene when you know they're without therapist and um all going at each other it started to kind of like you know loosen mm-hmm. um the grip a little bit in yeah. that ep- in that therapy session because you know roman obviously didn't want to talk none of them wanted to talk at first i mean it's so funny like <laughs> the therapist is like you know who wants to tell us what why we're here which is how any therapist actually would start a session you know so that was that was true to form i liked that and nobody wants to say anything and logan's like i'll start
0: well before yeah. that he says does no one want to take a pop at the champ
1: right right <laughs> right then logan I... has his refrain about you know i love my children and they're all just kind of like uh-huh and shiv <laughs> is the first one to kind of rock the boat a little bit Which makes sense with her character. Exactly. It makes perfect sense. I mean, she just cannot abide, you know, how contrived Logan's statement is. And and, and it's a thing that he said before, you know, I love my kids more than anything. What the fuck does that mean? And, you know, so Shiv kind of, you know, being the most like him is the most willing to kind of say, you know, I think that I'm not really willing to go go anywhere until we talk about why, why Kendall isn't here. And that's when you see even the veneer of Connor and Roman kind of start to crack even though they're, you know, they don't really get in dad's face. But Connor has the funny line of, well, well, now you're not listening to their feelings, dad, or not honoring their feelings.
2: <laughs> uh, yeah. But I- when, when they asked, uh, what are you feeling? Um, and I, I think as the therapist that asked that and Logan replies, you know, that I need to check my email and they're like, that's not a feeling. It <laughs> totally, it totally took me back to my therapy because that is exactly what my analyst would do. It'd be, they'd be like, how do you feel about this? And I'd be like, oh, I think that sounds great or whatever. And they're like, no, that's a thought, not a feeling, which is like a, a huge part of a lot of therapy, you know, learning to discern. Right. <laughs> between thoughts and feelings and being able to acknowledge the feeling aspect. I just wanted to ask real quick, Brendan, if you knew who directed this.
0: Oh, uh, great. Uh, great question because this is directed by, let me confirm this real quick. Uh, but I believe this episode was directed by uh, Miguel Arteta.
2: Okay. Because one of my favorite things about the therapy scene, and it took a few watches to actually pin it down, but Every que- after every question the therapist asks, the camera goes to each kid' facial response. Like one, two, three, and then Logan for every single time. And it's just, it's it's really funny, and you see just how flabbergasted they are. And I I just thought that was a really um, sharp choice. Uh, yeah.
0: Yeah, thank you for for asking that actually cuz I love Arteta He uh, is a frequent collaborator of uh, Mike White. Um, directed most recently I think the film wow. Beatrice at Dinner and also several episodes of Mike White's uh, HBO series Enlightened um, uh, which I enlightened. think is one of the, yeah, one of the best TV series. And Mike White is great. Um, Mike White yeah. is
1: amazing.
0: Yeah, Enlightened is one of the best TV series I think probably you know without qualification ever um and uh it Erica is, it, is
1: uh, inspired by marianne williamson because she was laura dern's roommate at one point
0: that yes
3: really.
0: yeah that's yeah, <laughs> exactly right yeah um so may- maybe laura dern can play the williamson surrogate who runs against uh connor for president next season <laughs> enlightened is a is a series you know about really just about how to be kind of you know, like a, like a good ethical person, the idea of like trying to, to, to change your life. Um, and it deals with that in a number of ways that are like, also both about and, yeah, 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 precisely. It's, yeah incredibly thoughtful series um about some of these some of these subjects that we're talking about here so he was he was a a a perfect choice to direct this episode and a big uh, part of the reason why it works um as well as it does i've talked about how i get kind of frustrated talking to people about this show and it feels like having to continually have this same conversation about The idea of, you know, are you supposed to sympathize with these pricks? And I think what you guys are providing here is sort of a different framework for how to think about the problem, kind of your identification, right? You know, do you have to like somebody necessarily to kind of understand, you know, what they're going through and to think about the drama in that way? and to engage with it on a different level. Um, so it's, it's, I think what you guys are doing is kind of pushing beyond this like, dislike, sympathetic, unsympathetic binary towards something that's more meaningful, especially for a show that is as thought through and carefully written as this one is. I'm just realizing, you know, as we're talking about this, that we didn't put anything on our outline about Gil, and this is the first Gil appearance. I was
2: kind of just thinking uh, that, yeah,
0: in this episode, so we can we can kind of briefly touch on on Gil. I think we talk about him a bit more in the subsequent episodes, but yeah, Gil, uh,
1: Gil takes us to Shiv, so.
0: Yeah, yeah. So Shiv, Shiv ditches therapy so she can go have this meeting with Gil Evis, the Bernie Sanders sort of surrogate character who Nate uh, has been working for this whole season. And uh, they have this face-to-face meeting where we meet for the first time uh, Eric Bogosian as Gil Evis. And uh, it's it's both like a very considered and mannered Bernie Sanders impression. And it's also not. There's a couple of gestures that he has with like the sort of slow way that he speaks and this particular, this thing where he kind of pushes his tongue into the side of his mouth that is very, very Bernie-ish. But other than that, I think Gil shows himself to be a, a, a... in, in some ways, I think a more shrewder and calculated uh, presence uh, than we get the impression of Sanders. And I think right away they start differentiating him from the person he's clearly sort of inspired by. I have
2: one theory I want to run by you guys. And that's the piss scene at the beginning where he gets, uh, Logan gets piss thrown at him and called monopolistic scum. You guys think that was uh, <laughs> a guy paid by Gill? I mean, he uses oh, Gil's language or George Soros. I don't think so, but <laughs> I meant it. I meant
1: it more as a joke, but like he literally does say yeah. the same. No, no, it's like fun. the whole. You know, idea, we talked about it in the pilot with Brendan James. The whole idea that like right, his stole his, and... is, his issue is like monopolies. It's, it's yeah. like, a little <laughs> bit off. Like yeah, you never know. But <laughs> yeah, he's taken. He's taken uh, exactly what.
2: Gil said and so I, I i i thought of that i don't know
0: no i don't think that's realistic because as we all know antifa actually worked for aoc uh so that's uh, i don't think Gil would be paying them
2: i hope aoc shows up in in the next season as, uh, oh
0: no i now that you've said that actually I'm, I'm i'm really hoping that george soros shows up <laughs>
2: god next season i can't wait to
0: i don't know that we have a ton to say about about gil in this episode necessarily um because i think the significance of that scene is it's it's momentous in the sense that we finally see this person who's been kind of suggested throughout the series but the scene is really more you know kind of part and parcel of what's going on for shiv in this episode of You know, wanting to continually try to escape from the pressures of her impending marriage, from her uh, family situation that makes her miserable and paranoid and feel out of control, and so she finally uh, succumbs to this measure of control. She can assert in this relationship with Nate that she uh, that she commences.
2: Well, and again, to bring in the unconscious, she has this uncon after you know the like failed therapy scene where she does try to. You know, challenge her dad. This has like been a catalyst for something inside her and her unconscious or whatever. Too, you know what? Dad did this to Kendall. Dad isn't willing to do this therapy. Dad brought us here for a photo op. Fuck, Dad. I'm going to meet Gil and I'm going to work for him and we're going to take him down. Like, I I think that's what's happening. Like, maybe not consciously, but you know, again, unconsciously for her. Uh, yeah, I think, here, I
1: think Shiv is definitely Shiv is definitely. Like very much regressed into childhood in this, in this episode, I think one of her earliest lines is, I wouldn't know, no one tells me anything, which to me was such like something I would have said when I was 15. So passive
2: aggressive. Yeah,
1: so she clearly feels out of control in this family and her ego is rooted in control. So she, you know, she challenges Logan. She's and she says, "Fuck off to the therapy" because she realizes it's, it's not going to get anywhere. And she goes to Gil and and is uh, offered this job, and she's comforted and energized, like she's feeling good. And then she gets in the car with Nate, who's arranged the meeting, and you know he suggests that they go back to his Airbnb. And instead, um, you know, Shiv is kind of riding this high that would be. You know, it really is a high for her. It's sort of the same buzz that an addict would get in terms of, of comfort and feeling good. And she instead takes Nate's hand and unzips her pants and, and just kind of uh, puts his hand there. And she's in total control. Like this is her at her most comforted, um, taking solace in her power. But, you know, as we see, that evolves into something that becomes ultimately completely out of her control and she starts hurting people and you know that's the death drive right there and there's nothing to be found in the death drive except misery death drive you know sort of being the the opposite of you know Eros or like the life drive where you know things that that motivate you and the death drive being um you know sort of this this impulse that the world is too much and having a soul is too much of a, a burden to shoulder. And so you seek out behaviors that are self-destructive.
0: That's pretty grim.
1: Yeah. yeah well,
2: I mean, it explains a lot of <laughs> self-destructive behavior, um, you know, specifically. Uh, and if I if I recall correctly, like Freud thinks that we repress the death drive and are...
1: Our- we tried to, at least.
2: Right, right. We tried to, but it does come out in in many forms. I think a lot of addicts are operating, you know, because they are so yeah, uh, sure. unhappy. Again, it goes back to mental illness, but they're not willing to face that and deal with it. And it's it's really just a a, a, a long form of suicide for a lot of the folks.
1: Yeah. So we see on is high, you know, getting what she wants sexually, you know, just the The wantonness of it uh, with Tom, you know, being there with her during family therapy, supporting her, getting the job that's going to, you know, stick a knife in daddy's heart because it's his enemy. Um, But then by the end of the episode, she gets called out and she gets pulled way down um, by her father, of all people.
0: She gets canceled. (laughs)
1: Yeah. She gets canceled Ruth- hard. When, Ruth- when,
0: ruthlessly canceled by her own. When father. I was
1: recently rewatching this, and Nadav like comes in and out of the room and just like comments. He's seen it before, but you know he doesn't. He can't sit down and rewatch. And he's just like when 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 Logan has the line about you want to be your own man, and you know you're marrying a man fathoms beneath you um, because you're scared and you're a coward. And then he's kind of see Tom's face. Like Shiv is destroyed by that, but Tom looks out to him. Nadav was like that's what you call a double murder.
0: <laughs>
1: Don't include <laughs> yeah, exactly. that. Don't yeah. include that. But... Double tap. <laughs> and then S- we see Ken S- also also in this episode um, <clears throat> re- reverting to earlier coping mechanisms and, and trying to find comfort. And he does that through, you know, a more obvious way, perhaps, than, than some of these other characters. And that's his substance use. And he flies down to New Mexico and uh, is going to commit maybe... Bratricide or patricide and he falls off the wagon and all of a sudden you know he's 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 literally high but also you know when he's in the the hot couch den we see different kind of ken i think it's uh for me it was um really fascinating to see the change in body language i know i've talked about its whole episode but um his whole persona like it's just you know it, it was so true to um what life is like for an addict
2: yeah, I yeah. think this is really, you know, the 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 piece that just totally kind of destroyed me in a certain way when I when I watched it, and and I I do think uh, Ken, Kendall and I um, would like stake money on it was completely sober leading up to this, despite his- yeah. Yeah, despite his dad placing the stories that he was using again. And I think those stories and kind of the way that Rava treated him and and how alone he feels and how he even indicates when he lands in New Mexico that it's patricide or fratricide, this is the death drive in action. Like he is going to self-destruct. Like, sure, he orders, tries to get a non-alcoholic beer first, but we know, I know, I knew that he was gonna use so many triggering moments can an addict only withstand before. I I really love Kendall, obviously, and watching him have some clarity after the drug use. I called it clarity initially, and on many rewatches, I'm not so sure that's actually the correct term because he is high, but he is able to finally achieve, as I mentioned earlier, just like this vulnerability, being comfortable in his own skin, saying what he needs to say. Like you said, his body language, I mean, watching him first, take that first hit of meth. His facial and I, and I always I mean, I'm the super fan here, like always on this on this pod. I'm sorry, but like in the in the hot couch scene, first of all, um, and then of course, <laughs> <laughs> you guys got wolves here. I, I Yeah, I mean, the wolf pack, man, they, that is some <laughs> funny, funny ass shit. That was a great scene they couldn't have done it better like I've known those people I've been in that room I think love how
1: he says like I think I'm interested in becoming a meth head yeah you know it, the whole thing is so funny and it's it's so true like if you've been there you know like that's what it's like and,
2: and um, it's, gr- it's gross like you said it's not like you know this is some lavish whatever it's like kind of a gross setting but yeah. there's still joy in it and that's right. You know, it's such a... So, so, yeah. So Ken Wilds is such a out. funny
1: beast. Yeah. It is a funny beast, yeah. Ken Wilde's out and and orders a bunch more drugs at the Wolf Den. There's a great line that one of them says, well, who's really better off in the long run, anyway? Oh, yeah. Well, obviously you, but, you know.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> and, then, like, that line wouldn't have worked without the, well, obviously you, because it would have been, like, you know, it, it would have been a little bit too question yeah. is like just a thought to throw out there but that's really to-
0: like that's this, that's this whole episode in like one but, sentence right but
1: the <laughs> whole thing about that is
2: Ken's response because he says this is like the true who care moment I don't even care who that is richer than us I mean who's better off ultimately I mean clearly you are but fuck <laughs> it who cares like who cares yeah. but, but Kendall quietly responds I do and after that moment is when he calls Roman. So I, I, I think it like, you know, it, it definitely hit Kendall on a certain, it was a catalyst for him to be like, whoa, wake up from the yes. situation and really depressing, you know, that he does care. That is all he has is that he's richer than them. And that's why, you know, he needs to default back to his family and go experience that's dynamic i guess as opposed to well, he's
1: ready to deal with it head on because you know he's right he's amped up he's singing the lion king in the car rome comes to, to save him pick him up a really tender moment that after roman's uh you know actions in episode six sort of re- redeemed him i mean i really loved it it was you know the way he says like you know drop me a pin like there's urgency in his voice he's concerned and and so you really see the love there and like like we've talked about the show doesn't give us a lot of background so we don't really you know we don't know exactly you know what the feelings are but that right there like that was you know childhood coping and protection and i just thought that that was such a humanizing moment for for rome
0: um yeah that's that scene in the car or something where it's like you can kind of see it almost different ways, I don't know, depending on your read of of what's happening, you know, either it's a moment where they're kind of reverting, as we've talked about, to this kind of childhood bond of brotherly teasing, um, or it's just Ken, like, not really aware of what's going on, and Roman, you know, uh, trying to handle the situation best he knows how, but you're right, I think, Gabby, that it is, like, the most direct indication we get of, like, what the past was like, what that childhood was like.
2: Well, and the thing is, these guys, you know, I talk about codependency and dysfunction, you know, we've talked a lot, but they all love each other and in in abundance and maybe don't show it the right ways. But the, the connections and the love is really powerful and really real. And you can feel it in those scenes in episode nine as well, when they're, you know, in the boat smoking the doobie. I mean, these guys really do care
1: for one another again, despite whatever. Well, something really kicks in when they sense like, true imminent danger, like even Shiv yeah. in the therapy session, the way that she's concerned, genuinely about the drug articles that are being spread. And she's so hurt when you know, Logan kind of inadvertently admits to it, you know, there there's something there that is not it's not put on. It's it's absolutely from childhood and and it's just really i don't know it was a direction that, that i didn't think the show was going to take but they did it so well
0: can i shout out scene i or a moment i really like and i think is one of the the best bits of direction on this show direction and editing the moment when ken relapses the way that 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 is shot and edited is it's, it's a silent moment and this show is not one that is really showy in terms of its direction, it doesn't usually like visually underline moments. And I don't think it does here either because it's quite it's quite subtle. But the sort of glance that is exchanged between Ken and this bartender in this, you know, middle of nowhere dive where he orders, a sh- uh, you know, a shot of vodka and it uh, drinks it down is it just had me thinking immediately about, you know, how many times in their career a bartender will serve somebody that drink right the drink that that re- that that is the relapse yeah. um and the the way that that is just shot the way you know the way that Ken's eyes like never leave the counter the way that his eyes never leave you know the alcohol once it's poured um it's uh it, the moment is just it's very quiet but it's very very heavy and it's over very quickly at the same time um but it's 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 a it, I thought a really graceful and a well edited moment that really just kind of hits home how easy something like that is and how common it is at the same time
1: so so Roman is sort of um. Operating his, you know, his typical mo here, trying to please dad. He ends up being the only one there for the scheduled photo op, which you know the rest of them at that point kind of are done with the conceit of it all. And he's just, it's, it's <laughs> that's also a really funny scene when they're walking in the desert being photographed, and the guy's like, "You look so, you guys look so imperial." And imperial, he says it um, in the beginning of of episode six to the rapper. I think that was earlier, but yeah. No, no, it was episode six. The cold opening of episode six. Yeah, yeah. the snoop, yeah. But that was just a tangent, sorry. So anyway, so so Roman's there for the photo op, staying in the good graces of dad, but he does make a joke about Connor sexually abusing him as a child in this episode. And it's clearly a joke, like Connor didn't abuse Roman, but I think knowing in the context of of what we already have learned about Roman psychosexual issues. So this is something worth flagging. um, Because Roman's joking, but joking is classic coping. And it's classic Roman coping. I mean, that's his defense mechanism is like, just to not be serious. And so I think he might be dropping a subconscious bit of info. I mean, sexual abuse among children, unfortunately, is much more common than most people think. It's common in wealthy families, too. It's not hard to imagine that the Roy kids were probably exposed to all sorts of adults and adult situations in their childhood. And, and we know that parents were divorced. Logan probably traveled a lot. Shit happens. Kids get abused. I don't know if we're ever going to learn anything more about that with respect to Roman, but I just thought it was worth flagging. And I also thought, you know, Kieran Culkin, kind of just interesting that his real life has been characterized by essentially a extremely dysfunctional childhood and child stardom and I'm sort of fascinated by child stars and and his brother was if you don't know have made the connection is he's Macaulay Culkin's little brother and also Rory Culkin and there's four more siblings and Macaulay Culkin was you know one of the biggest stars in the world when he was just a little kid and their dad was known to be abusive like kieran has acknowledged that after 15 he did not have a relationship with his father they grew up poor they lived in a railroad apartment in a tenement on east 94th and second barely suitable for a couple kieran says it was just a hallway there were no separating doors except for the bathroom which didn't have a lock they raised seven kids in that apartment for years some of us would go to school of us wouldn't and then you know macaulay got famous with home alone all of a sudden gives their father tremendous influence in hollywood because he was his agent and um yeah apparently he was like this domestic tyrant who terrorized his children with punishing threats and humiliation and he alienated them and his the the culkins mother and lost everything and you know this article i read it was an interview in vanity fair with kieran about his his childhood. And from the article, it says, it makes sense that Kieran sees fame as not a nice thing. I think well-adjusted, smart people that experience it first or secondhand would not pursue it. He says, I'll totally take personal happiness over success, absolutely. If I'm miserable, then what's the fucking point? And when it came to casting Roman, as soon as Kieran read on the camera, Jesse Armstrong said, that was it, that's Roman. He had an instant feel for the part. Um, That in the pilot, there's an early scene where they're discussing, just to a trust, and Roman is lying the wrong way up on a couch. That physical gesture is one of those instinctive things which speaks volumes about his relationship to his family. He had a sense of his character from the beginning. So... Just an interesting context in terms of, of you know how quickly Kieran um, connected to Roman, and then you know this whole idea of, of difficult childhoods.
2: Yeah, Kieran is uh, as Roman always occupying space. Very interestingly, I know there's even like an article on the top twenty. I think it's New York Mag, but like the top twenty positions <laughs> he's
1: been in. And yeah. Um, no, people are like obs- <laughs> it's like a it's like a
2: meme now. yeah, no, it's and and the way they all <laughs> occupy space, like it just feels like like we've said before, and I think I'm thinking about the way they occupy space, for example. And it's not just Kieran, although he's probably the most eccentric in that regard. But th- those types of things really do kind of speak to the larger idea of like their comfort level who they are etc we,
0: we talk a bit about you know what comes up about roman's childhood in episode eight and you know with that in mind I, that to me this material where him making this joke about sexual abuse reads to me as him distracting or deflecting from the things that are actually traumatic in his childhood. The real pain
2: We're making, making yeah. up this
0: big up this big trauma um you know as we've talked about to deflect from the real perhaps more minor ones that he experienced
2: yeah i think that's how i read it as well although i don't think it's out of the um not fit that any of the kids were sexually abused but i don't think they're gonna go there and i don't i think it's like for
1: me it's just so theoretical you know i don't know yeah no i think it's better if they don't go there but again it's just another interesting way the show lets you kind of fill in the gaps
2: well, and, and the the coping mechanisms. I mean, we're just constantly seeing how they won't face things, you know, like the dog pound and and finding these other ways to like deflect, deny, delude. I mean, that's what these kids do every day of their life and repress, you know, and, and I think that's certainly like him saying that is certainly an example of deflection and, and his, you know, trying to. As, the way that Brendan characterized it, I think, is is pretty spot on.
1: Yeah, even even Connor, um, you know, we get some vulnerability from him in this episode because usually, you know, he he is mostly an out- outlet for comic relief slash total fear because of people like him actually exist in the world. But I mean, his that persona is kind of punctured, and we see pain. We have to probably think that he was the only child for some time and the refrain in this episode is that you know dad's always working and i think connor is probably a very lonely kid there's that funny line where it's like (laughs) little so little boy-esque again i mean they are children in this episode when logan has to go to the photo shoot and he's like you know or he has to do something for work and connor's like it's okay pa i've had a lot of practice um, yeah,
0: that's that's at the very end. That's in the, <laughs> and that scene at the end is like, because because Connor brings it up again, he's like, "Yeah, I feel used." You know, you came here because you said yeah. you wanted to to talk, and you're you're working the whole time. It's like, what? I can't take you know some some time. Like, can't you wait? And he goes, "Yeah, yeah, I've had a lot of practice." And that's that's it's the way that uh, Ruck delivers that is is so great because uh-huh. you know, he's, play, he's played this character as such a clown Brutal. for for the past six seven episodes, and all of a sudden you get this this real. Real visible pain seeping through there. That's right on the surface, and it's uh, it's 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 quite a fine uh, moment of acting there for a character who, yeah, I think that that wall goes right back up, and for the next few episodes, he's again back to back to playing the clown. Um, but yeah. you see this this pain that's right below the surface for Connor there. That's that's quite humanizing.
2: I gotta admit that, and this probably is of no surprise. I transcribed the entire final scene.
1: <laughs> it's so good. I mean. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
2: yeah, so I'm just looking know. gotta say I feel a bit used today paw I also find his use of paw kind of interesting I don't know Nothing well those are really very too very old timey
0: very, <laughs> yeah it's very uh, poignant about about connor and about ruck's performance is that ruck is actually like barely younger than than brian cox he's like a decade younger than brian cox exactly he's he's a he's a middle-aged you know you know he's almost an old man and the fact that and he's still nursing this this hurt from his childhood that, that you can tell has has really absolutely never been addressed like at all um and it's and it's still with him
2: just like the rest of them I mean, right, but like it's, we yeah, said but from the get-go, they, none of them have acknowledged or are willing to acknowledge uh, they had trauma in their life. Sure, uh, like a serious trauma that is affecting them currently, and and that's why they do therapy as a uh, chore or, or whatnot, rather than actually seeing it as a way to break through and have real
1: growth. Yeah, but it was like the first time we really saw Connor. W- with Connor, be, yeah. Yeah. And that was, yeah, that was really well done. So that final scene is just, it's really a fantastic <laughs> scene.
2: I mean, you all know my thoughts on this. So I don't even really have to say anything, but this scene was so like liberating for me to watch. I um, realized
1: on a, on a, on a rewatch that when Ken is sort of, um, sitting up on the counter after he's had his family therapy moment, which will live in infamy, he, the pounding yeah, on the window pounding okay. on the window he so he's sitting on the counter and he's smiling and i'm like i realize, like i don't think i've seen jeremy strong really smile at all throughout yeah. this entire yeah, without- series maybe maybe once or twice with rava and the kids but he's so at ease his body, body yeah um is re- is released like there's no none of that blind rage and fear that you see with him when he's face-to-face with Logan, which he is in this situation. I mean, he looks him directly in the eye. He smiles with, like, almost this condescension.
2: With the, you are a fucking nobody. And then that Ken face is just amazing. It's that smirk. He doesn't care
1: for the the first But it's also
2: victory, you know? And I know this episode is really about Logan's victory because he survived all of this and in in a lot of ways split the siblings and conquered them similar to Napoleon did with the allies. But at that moment, I mean, I think that, you know, he had a breakthrough, uh, Kendall, and and, and was just taking in that victory and really, really just enjoying it, which made me really happy as a Team Kendall person, someone who really feels for um, him despite his dickish
0: yeah and what's what what may or may not be obvious about this episode you know the way it's structured is that it's building to this idea you know of the the family therapy and this confrontation that needs to happen and there's a fight towards that confrontation in the quote unquote therapy scene where um everyone decides it's fake and gets frustrated and it breaks up and this scene is the therapy this is the thing that they've come there to do that whether they know it or not this is the thing that needs to happen for anybody to heal or to start to grow or move on uh from their traumas and it, it only lasts a couple of minutes because they, they, i don't think they've ever really done this before uh it seems this confrontation is unsustainable for them you know shiv is immediately wounded and you know leaves and logan flies into a rage as soon as he's criticized and, and leaves and uh connor and roman uh, are barely participating but it's 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 this is the thing that was supposed to happen when they know it or not and uh, right. it'll probably never happen again
1: and i think ken, ken gets to the heart of it with his line uh, to logan which is you're so jealous of what you've given your kids which is something that you know i feel like is relatable for a lot of us and you know it reveals something about logan that
0: can i ask what, what what do you think he means by that because that's that's a line that i'm struck by because i'm not sure that i understand totally that idea of what it is that he's jealous of i'm not sure that that totally makes sense to my conception of logan
1: This directly cuts to the heart of Logan's trauma, which is his childhood. And his childhood was probably abjectly more traumatizing than the Roy kids, or at least what he perceives because in his mind he's given them the world we know he grew up poor we know there's dysfunction we're not exactly sure if his parents were in the picture if he was raised by his aunt and uncle but but we can infer and the show gives us something at the end to sort of confirm that that logan you know had a you know an objectively horrifying childhood where you know the trauma is not you Mm -hmm. know titrated or measured or something to to be on earth like it was just objectively bad and so I think for him, you know, there's something about when you become super wealthy, you know, it's, it's very easy to make that your currency. It's very easy to buy people's love that way, including your children. And I think that, you know, he is sort of looking at his kids as mirrors of him. And, you know, he's jealous. Maybe not jealous is the right word, but it, it's rooted in jealousy that look at all I've given you and, you know, you're still so ungrateful. And you know, think in the context of what he had to go through, it's just impossible. He's blinkered, um, just in the way that they're blinkered. It's impossible for him to to understand what they could possibly be in pain about. And again, this goes to the you know whole theme of the episode where Logan is, um, you know, he is centering himself as as a victim here, and I, I think that's an uncomfortable place for him to be. But it's you know, similar to the rest of them. It's a vulnerable and it's an honest place.
2: Yeah, I mean, what's also interesting and in terms of like really being powerful and this being a th- true therapeutic kind of moment is that Logan actually does make the connect to his childhood and brings up Uncle, no- uncle Noah, you know, which we don't hear him speak of. And, you know, he says to Kendall, if I would have spoken to my uncle like that and Kendall downplays, you know, whatever trauma logan did face which you know it's pretty shitty but but yeah logan is rattled enough to even like begin to look at his childhood you know um which again is 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 that's progress in terms of like therapeutically?
0: Well, I think it's it's a it's a good point you make about how Ken downplays his reference uh, to his uncle. He's he you know dismissively says, "Oh, what would evil Uncle Noah do?" As if he like doesn't believe that his uncle was evil or that it's something his dad talked about too much and uh, they don't have the context for it. Um, but you know there is that reference, of course, you know to swimming earlier where Shiv says that you know their dad doesn't swim because he doesn't even trust water. But obviously the implication of the fl- of the final few shots where you see Logan emerge from the pool with his back covered from these scars from, you know, a childhood of beatings that he has hidden that part of himself. And it it and uh, it hadn't occurred to me until we're talking about this just now, but his kids genuinely might not know that that happened to him.
2: Oh, it's absolutely very- not. <laughs> I mean, there's no way that Logan... Has been able, the only person that he's clearly able to be that vulnerable with is Marsha because Shiv says he doesn't even swim because water is too wishy washy. Well, guess what, Shiv? He does swim when he's with Marsha, who's clearly someone he feels safe with, love with, and he's able to be vulnerable in that regard. So I, I don't think that they know at all. I don't think he's willing to talk about it. My dad has abuse in his family history, and he's not able to talk about it. I mean, this is, you know, common, especially for boomers. You know, you repress, you don't talk about shit. I mean, it's, it's a so generational much more common thing.
1: People realize. And, and again, I, it goes back to what I said early in the beginning that like, I just don't think we've reckoned with how trauma has shaped society, has shaped yeah. people and, and I, I wish that we would um because yeah I, I agree Logan would never tell his kids that that happened to him because that would invite vulnerability and weakness and what is more detestable and loathsome to to Logan than weakness and his whole style of parenting um, and his approach to business is a reflection of, of the way he grew up I mean he's you know his way is to sort of replicate what happened to him in the hopes that you know it, it will, lead to some sort of, of corrective experience. I think Logan is dealing with some pretty heavy trauma that, you know, has not been unearthed. I mean, perhaps with Marsha, but you're right. Yeah, the kids, they probably know it was not a great childhood, but we don't know how much they know. And it seems like they don't know everything. And it's crazy that they wouldn't even, it wouldn't even occur to them. I don't know.
2: I think they're dismissive of it because of their own childhood and how they feel about Logan. So they can't get there yeah. and- th- Empathy wise.
0: Uh, this, well, this is something that I heard. Um, I heard the folks on the on the Ringer podcast talk about this idea that, you know, the way that you see Ken in the finale is the way that uh, Logan prefers him, which is, you know, as a, as a child that he can uh, comfort and control. And uh, if, if I'm thinking about this idea that, that Logan is, is jealous of his children, um, you know, it's the reason that's confusing to me is because it, it requires you to think about what a person like Logan wants, you know, besides power right? Which is the only thing that we see is, is driving him. And, you know, we know what his children want, uh, which is, I think, for the thing that unifies them is this, this search for an identity beyond the family, which is the thing that, that Ken is, is searching for in these last few episodes, a, a, way to, a way to be himself, you know, beyond the confines of the family business and of the family name. You know, that's what Shiv is doing in uh, uh, forging a career outside of the family business, it's what Connor is doing, and you know whatever the hell he does. the idea that they would want something separate from him, I think is what's enraging to him because he feels that you know that they should be grateful, but there's also the question of you know what kind of identity does he want you know to, to imagine a world outside of what he's built outside of his work it's uh, it's just it's something that I haven't quite squared because you just don't imagine a person like this you know in the real world as having wants besides you know this this appetite for for power imagine, but for it's unconscious. the
1: unconscious it's the unconscious Conscious, He doesn't even know it.
0: Right. Right.
2: <laughs> yeah. I also didn't really resonate with the jealousy thing. And I do think it's more that his, and again, this could be a lot of projection happening here. Um, But that, you know, he, he more resents his children for not being grateful. And, and I think that's really the key of why He's so angry at them more so than jealousy. But in that line where Ken does mention jealousy, he also acknowledges, you know, he says, you know, I was born lucky. I'm a lucky person. I realized that. And that's like the first time I think it's really important. It's the first time we hear any of the kids really acknowledge like their privilege. And that they are lucky instead of just taking it for granted and, you know, hungering for more power or wealth or, you know, leadership, whatever. But it's the first time we kind of hear him acknowledge that he knows he's really lucky. And I I thought, again, you know, these drugs were able to bring and maybe it wasn't the drugs, but um, the drugs were able to kind of strip him down to a level of clarity, a level of emotional independence, where he can kind of see things lot more again to use the word clearly but like i think it's um a really great scene a really great episode for ken and as a kendall fan it just this really living through it is great
0: yeah and to just return to the point i made earlier i think that in considering logan and you know the idea of his wants conscious or otherwise i think again that is where the framework that you two have kind of laid out in this episode is 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 helpful because logan is really a character that defies the sympathetic unsympathetic um binary uh because you know even even if you know quite decisively that you don't like him it's uh it's it's hard to access you know the the mind of a person like this to and to think about you know what his what his conscious wants feelings are because they're so walled off and they're so connected to these these movements of strategy and uh, power and so that's where I think this this framework of thinking about thinking about people in terms of their histories and their traumas um, and, and how that comprises you know their consciousness and their identities is 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 more helpful than more traditional modes of. Uh, sympathetic or unsympathetic
1: very well put thank you brendan
2: now i feel kind of silly because it's 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 just the fan in me that wants to point it out you know but I love uh, in the confrontation scene where Logan says I'm talking about Kendall and uh, leaking the info that he was using again and he says what you kids do not understand is it's all part of the game which like is an ongoing kind of as well as the trap the game is like you know from the very beginning in the pilot where they talk about the game I think the game is like an ongoing theme here in succession and but Kendall's response is just so funny and so while well, the Delivered and he's like oh it's all part of the game come on everybody it's a rootin' tootin' super fucking fun game for a family step right up you know and it <laughs> it's a
1: really good it's, moment it's so
2: good so funny and he delivered and and he also just again cuts through that bullshit of his dad and that talk you know the game like what the fuck are you talking about the game this is life dude this isn't some fucking chessboard and ultimately
1: right. in a perfect world this is the kind of family therapy that they would have where they can actually address each other with some emotional yeah. honesty and openness but with a professional there to guide them but there's no professional there and like brendan said because of that they can't tolerate it and you know it all sort of dissolves but they get to something there that is productive unfortunately it's just a a tip of the iceberg type of type of thing but just really well done, really incredibly well acted, written, directed as always. Yeah. But this episode will be special forever. Austerlitz. And then uh
2: I don't know if anyone else noticed. We get no Greg this entire episode. Greg the boy. Greg the egg. <laughs> he's not Rip. he's not part enough part of the family as Will is, I guess.
0: Greg fell in the pit. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this episode just was so special and tore me up. I mean, a lot of crying on the initial watch. And I hope you guys really appreciated this, both the episode and, and our little discussion here. I know we ran long and talked about some, you know, digressed a bit, but I, you know, this, this again is labor of love. And boy, does this episode really uh, do it for me emotionally. Thanks.
0: Yeah, special, special shout-out to the HBO PR team who listened to all of this. <laughs> Thank you so much. It means a lot. Uh, we appreciate you uh, giving us the keys to the official Twitter account. We won't let you know. <laughs> Our friend Cam is here next week, and that's, a, that's, one, that's an episode we've already recorded, and he, uh, he offers uh, some more sustained kind of critique of the show and gives us the opportunity to have a, a, a sort of different kind of discussion about it uh, than we've had before. And uh, some of the uh, over-the-top gushing uh, that you may have gotten uh, from us about this show is, is tempered by next yeah. week's discourse.
2: It's funny, Cam messaged me and was like, you know, after he saw that the staff and um, cast members were getting involved, he's like, oh man, they're going to just totally bail on you after episode eight. I'm so sorry.
0: No, I'm. I, I was really pleased with the way that episode came out, and I'm looking forward to everybody hearing it because uh, Cam was a was a great choice for a guest. He's very thoughtful, very funny, uh, and uh, he he made some good points, and I think enabled us to look at the show kind of in a in a different light and even appreciate it in a different light. So it's it's a good episode, and I'm looking forward to everybody hearing it.
1: We're changing the status quo, just like the second half of Succession.
0: That's right, flipping the script. <laughs>
2: Yeah, thanks, Brendan, so much, and for being patient with us about this episode. And Gabby, your notes and Jesus—I mean, I was really intimidated, and I think I think we did a good job.
1: Yeah, you it was good. I we, this. we had some some rambling moments, I feel, but you I
0: think know, we wanted Brendan podcasting.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> that's right. That's how Logan would see it.
0: <laughs> all right, folks. Till next right. time.
2: Ciao. Cheers. Good night.